and welcome to Reliving My Youth, the show where we look back at pop culture from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. My name is Noah Fulton. It's one of the most memorable hooks, not only the 80s, but all time. It's I Can't Wait by New Shoes. I had the pleasure of chatting with John Smith and Valerie Day, the married couple behind New Shoes. Let me tell you, they couldn't be any nicer. They tell me the story behind the song, the fascinating story on how the two met, and what their reactions were when they found out they were nominated for the Best New Artist Grammy. The two took a break from the band for a little bit, not from each other, and they were working on their own stuff, but they formed New Shoes again, and they released Bagtown in 2016. They are currently touring as part of the Lost 80s Live Tour. Tickets are on sale now. I can't wait to see the show in the summer. Here's my conversation with John and Valerie. And helping me relive my youth today are Valerie Day and John Smith of New Shoes. How are you guys doing today? We're doing great. Thanks for having us on your show. Oh, I'm really happy to have you guys. Um, so I'm going to start way, way back. How did you two meet? That's 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 a wild story. Now, um, <laughs> it turned out that that Portland had a um, a raging. Uh, well, they didn't call it world music yet, but there were Latin bands and African bands and a lot of great conga players and stuff. So uh, we both kind of fell in with this Latin band called Felicidades, and uh, I, they gave me a a shot at playing with them and so uh, New Shoes ended up coming out of that group of people 
band disintegrated. Uh, two of us got together and started New Shoes in 79. And at first it was just uh, terribly eclectic, you know. There was no focus. Right. Uh, but then by 1980 we got a, a big Tower of Power style horn section and backup singers. We went up to 12 people and then um, a year later we got it down to nine. We streamlined it down to nine. And we got to be one of the top local bands in Portland, which was really a great thrill. Uh, that's great. Now, what kind of music scene did Portland have back then? Amazing. You know, um, we worked... Uh, uh, our biggest year, we played 300 days, you know, and within a couple square miles, there were 10 clubs, so you could work every weekend. And you, sometimes, um, you know, between three and five days a week, we were playing. And so by the time we got a record deal, we could really play. We'd really... Um, had our flight time, you know. Yeah, tons of tons of stage experience in in clubs anyway. And in those days, there weren't any opening acts, so it was four sets. You know, you start at nine thirty and you get done at two thirty. Wow. Huh. In the morning. Yeah. And four hours a night. Yeah. So it was a it was a good training ground. Now, would you, playing four hours, I mean, pretty much exhaust, like, all your musical library. Did you kind of switch it up a little bit if you had to? Oh, that, that's a really great question, because actually it was one of the things that um, especially drove John crazy during that time as the musical director. He's, like, always trying to get new material into the mix, because, um, yeah, you play the same stuff over and over again. You go kind of... You couldn't keep four hours fresh, you no. know. Right. You'd end up having to play shotgun and rescue me and <laughs> all this stuff that was like, like moldy by that <laughs> time. And, and then you know, people would leave the band, and you'd have to teach the new band member songs that you really didn't want to play anyway, but you had to because it was four hours. But what happened was that. Um, it turned into a songwriting factory. Like, uh, we were working in batches of 10 songs and trying to finish two new songs every week. And that was really healthy. You know, so in addition to playing, you know, I'd come home from the gig at 2.30 in the morning and start writing for Wednesday rehearsal. You know, so it was like like 24 hours a day, new shoes. And at this point, this was your full-time gig, right? You didn't have, like, a side job to pay bills oh, or anything? No. Okay. Well, we, we played in clubs for seven years. So at, at the beginning, um, I don't know, we had various jobs. Like, I cleaned houses, and John was working in a restaurant, and I don't know, different different stuff like that. But, but there was a point where it was like, okay, we're, we're not making a ton of money, but... We're making just enough to squeak by and put just a little bit more on our credit cards every month. Uh, the money was just a little better than working in a restaurant. Just a little. <laughs> I bet, yeah. <laughs> now, Valerie, did you join uh, New Shoes in 79 when John formed it? No. Um, the four-piece uh, I was not in. Um, I joined the second iteration of the band um, as the percussionist slash backup singer 
um, I was, in, you know, in the 12 piece. I was in the Islets, which were the um, backup singers. There were three of us, and uh, we did a lot of Motown, and it was really fun. It was great. Then I went off to college, and then when I came back, the, the band had, had changed again, and um, I again joined as backup singer and percussionist, but there, the Islets were no longer. Yeah, and then um, our lead singer at the time, um, started missing gigs due to a drug problem. Okay. And uh, and so he was out in 82, and Valerie came in as the lead vocalist. And, it w you know, we literally... Kind of by accident, actually. Like, you know, he missed a gig, and I'm I'm standing there, and we're going, okay, we got to fill four hours. I guess I'm singing his tunes, you know? Right. <laughs> we, we didn't know the words, too, or know the words. they were in the wrong keys and yeah. stuff, but... So we stumbled really bad for a while there. For a couple months, yeah. Yeah, and then we got enough material in the band and got another another male singer. But I ended up being the lead singer by default, which I was not going to be the lead vocalist because I really preferred singing harmony and being in the background. And my mom was a professional opera singer, so being a singer was just not one of the things that I thought I would end up doing. And in all these years later, right? <laughs> right, I know. You just can't get away from from that that tree. That apple doesn't fall far from the tree, or whatever they say. <laughs> right. <laughs> now, move a little forward. You know, it's like the mid '80s, and right before "I Can't Wait" came out. How long was the process to make that song? I know it was kind of like it wasn't an overnight success. The journey up the charts.
Sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it's actually quite fascinating. People will come up to us sometimes and say, you know, how do, how do you get a record deal and, mm-hmm. and uh, how do you sell records? And, and, you know, it just is not a straight line. I mean, maybe for some acts it is, but for us it was really very circuitous route. So we're in the clubs for seven years, and um, we, we uh, make a, an EP, a cassette, um, with five songs on it, um, borrow the money to do it. it cost twenty five hundred dollars to make, which was an enormous amount of money for us at that time. If right. I could borrow it from some friends of my mom's in order to to make the thing, and um, it got a good review in a local uh, music mag. And um, in that magazine, they said the writer said, "Hey, this is a you know a great." track, uh, or a great bunch of tracks, too bad local radio doesn't play, like Z100 doesn't play um, local music because this is good stuff. So the music director for the Morning Zoo, um, Gary Bryan, he reads this article over the air one morning and says, if Nuces is listening, come on down and bring the cassette and we'll play it. <laughs> well, our manager at the time, who was also a bartender, <laughs> um, he uh was awake. I don't know why he was awake. Maybe he stayed up all night, but he jumps on his Vespa and he goes down to the station and they pick I Can't Wait to Play off the cassette. And that uh, really started the ball rolling. It was kind of amazing because from the beginning, people loved the song and the phone slid up and people wanted to hear more of it. And um, it ended up being uh, on the uh, air all over the Pacific Northwest. But we could not get any labels interested. We did a demo for Warner Brothers and um, went down to L.A. and recorded five songs, and they listened to it and said, we already have Madonna. Hmm. And and that was it. It was like, oh, my God, this just took like a year out of our lives. What are, you know, what's going to happen? Nothing. Where, where do we go now? So um, as luck would have it, a DJ uh, a record subscription called Hot Drex got in touch with us and said, we'd like to put I Can't Wait on a DJ compilation record. I think about a thousand copies, I think, go out. Yeah. Yeah. And so we said, sure. And so that record went over to Holland as an import, was found by Injection Records, who asked Peter Slockhouse to remix it. 
He is really an ABBA fan, doesn't like the song that much, we find out later. Okay. So he did very little to it, but he did put the thing on the front. Right. And We call it the barking seal. Did some more remixy stuff to it. That record goes back to New York as an import and starts getting played like crazy in the dance clubs there. And Atlantic has hired this this young guy, this Italian guy, uh, who goes out to the clubs and listens to all the new music, and he finds it and says, "We gotta find these guys." So that's how we got a record deal. And that was like, <laughs> it, that's it, how you do it. That's how you do it, kids. <laughs> wow. I mean, na- now you just put it up on YouTube, and, and minutes yeah. later. Yeah, with- Yeah. Crazy. I, uh, yeah, so the song after that became a hit. I, I had uh, the vinyl copy of Poolside, uh, loved it. Uh, the video of I Can't Wait is pr- pretty fun. <laughs> I'm glad you like it. Wait, that's still our favorite video that we did for the records that we made for Atlantic. It was, um, it was a local guy from Portland, uh, Jim Blashfield, who um, had also done Michael Jackson and Paul Simon and Joni Mitchell and you know Peter Gabriel yeah Peter Gabriel that was Talking great heads. I mean he's Jim Blashfield's a really amazingly talented individual and he's still a friend of ours yeah oh, that's good. did you enjoy making it uh did we enjoy making the video I wasn't in it so. yeah I know that yeah <laughs> well we yeah, did actually with... a bunch of alternate <clears throat> scenes that ultimately didn't make it into the video um, the fun thing about that video was that it was totally improvised, we found out later. Jim had no real idea what he was going to do. <laughs> he just got a bunch of props and brought them to the soundstage, including the um, doghouse. And it turns out his neighbor's dog that was in the doghouse. I was going to ask you about the dog. <laughs> <laughs> when he liberated it from the backyard of his neighbor, he was he like, took the dog yeah, too. We'll bring the dog too. So that's how the dog with sunglasses ended up in that video. And then... You know, after we did a bunch of alternate uh, takes, he, he has me sit at this table, and I think to this day I'm still the only singer who's ever, like, sung in a video while doing small appliance repair. It's like, <laughs> it was just, he said, take that apart and put it back together. Yeah. Now, were you handy, or was that just totally improvising? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and the shark in the thing and pulling the shark out and like you know kind of being deadpan about the whole thing like yeah of course I'm singing this song and I'm putting together stuff and pulling sharks out of coffee pots and it's right. just normal everyone right yeah. <laughs> but it really matched our aesthetic mm-hmm. you know we were uh, we'd never had any shoes in, in, in anything you know and we didn't want to be literal girl waiting by the phone, alone by the telephone, you know. Uh, so his um, his take on, on new shoes was perfect, we thought. Yeah, no, it, it, it definitely was. And I like when you're sitting at the desk looking at, at the lamp. I don't know if those were less than kind of like what kind of slides they were, but it kind of reminded me of uh, the show Dexter. If, if they got that from there, because he used to get blood slides in his little uh, compartment, so I wonder if they got that look from there. <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah, I never made that connection before. Yeah. So then um, you guys get nominated for a Grammy. What was that experience like? 
let you tell that story, John. Okay. It's kind of funny. Yeah. We were we were hippies that played jazz, you know. <laughs> That's where we came out of. We were never we didn't even know what top forty radio was. There was a guy that at Warner Brothers that helped us understand how top forty worked and stuff, but we were just pretty much on our own path, you know. And so I didn't even know what a Grammy was. <laughs> we were so ignorant. Well, you know, we were just like... Busy working. We didn't have a TV and stuff. Yeah, we didn't. You know, through the whole 70s, we didn't own a television. Yeah. So, so we get this call. Our manager called up and uh, said, Hey, you, you've been nominated for a Grammy. I was like, oh, that's funny. You know, he doesn't even tell I didn't me. even tell Val for four hours. <laughs> But then the local stations started calling up, and all the TV stations started calling us up and going, oh, what do you think, you know, the Grammy, and oh, this must be a big deal, you know. And we're like, oh, huh, it must be a big deal. Yeah, <laughs> so so we were clueless about that. But then we figured out that um, Bruce Hornsby was going to win. Right. Because, because he sold about three times as many records as we did, and he seemed to fit the uh, older demographic of the people who vote for the Grammys, the members of the era. at that time, I yeah. think he fit really well. Yeah, real mainstream. So we, we guessed that he was going to win. So then Valerie came up with the line, we told the interviewers that uh, we were writing Bruce Hornsby's acceptance speech. <laughs> you hope you win huh? and and well you don't know you know right and your your body goes gee that antiperspirant i put on earlier just not working at all <laughs> and <laughs> maybe know? we should have written a speech just right. in case just you know in case, but then he pretty speech did, did win but it wasn't it was an amazing experience being you know in that milieu at that particular moment in our lives we just yeah really yeah if you guys did end up winning, you could have just walked over to Bruce and took his speech and read it. Yeah, exactly. Actually, he made a be- his speech was beautiful. I remember it to this day because he um, he just gave his band a lot of credit for being there for him and with him and stuff. It was great. It, he really uh, revealed himself to be a great human, you know? Yeah, and you know, he's, he's put out... S- bunch of great music since then uh yeah but poolside had a couple other big hits but what happened with the follow-up why wasn't that successful oh we did get um we did have a hit single called uh uh should i say yes of that i've told you so
difficult and and not because of uh pressure from the record label they didn't they didn't know what they had with us you know they're just clueless about what we were and, um, and we were not able to really articulate it well for right. them either so i uh, you know there's like a two-way street there yeah so we we are not people that will blame the record label for anything and, but it was just really really difficult and not very fun uh during the making of the second record. I think part of it is that you, know, you spend all these years like writing songs and putting together, you know, your 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 show and all of that and then the first record is kind of all about that and then you have to you have to put a whole new set of songs together and in um when you're in that sophomore you know, swamp kind of part right. of your <laughs> career. Yeah. You're also wanting to prove yourself uh, again. I mean, it's hard to follow up a, a hit record with another hit record because you're trying to show that you can do more things than that. At least that's what we were Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah, we didn't try to make another I Can't Wait ever. Right. right. You know, that that's probably, that's what people wanted. But, you know, we were we were trying again to, like, broaden our our scope and show people that we had more going on than just that and so I think that was um, it, you know the combination of it was harder to, to figure out a way to, to market that and who do you market to I mean the good news is that we were on all these different um, radio uh, format format yeah that's true so you know, who do you market to? Do you market to the dance crowd or the um, black radio or pop radio or, you know, like there was all this. Anyway, it, it, it was just a, a difficult uh, thing. But we did get a good song off of it, and um, we got to 28? 41. Oh, 41. That's right. We didn't. <laughs> we missed all the free Casey Kasem, American Top 40. Uh, exposure that we would have gotten had we gone one slot higher. Yeah, should I say yes? Is the is the song right? And it's no, I, I yeah, and I enjoyed you know, told you so. You know, wonder and drifting. Oh no, all those songs were were great. It was just, uh, it's it's hard just to recapture the magic. Yeah. Well, you know, I God, I can't wait. Was just so massive and so spontaneous and and did a thing. You know, it was a dance floor. To this day, it's a dance floor classic. But, yeah, you know, we just didn't try to replicate that. Because how could you? That was... I, I, I will admit that during the making of I Can't Wait, that was probably the most I ever believed in that whole process. Right. You know, in, in making funk. I was trying to take my band back from band members that wanted to play New Wave and other band members that thought we should play rock and stuff. It's like, I'm going to write the funkiest damn thing I can. And that was, I can't wait, you know? It was like a force of will or something, you know? And, um, and it was sincere. And I never really believed in funk music that much ever again. And as a matter of fact, by the time that we had been through this uh, mill, I was kind of bored of funk music. I was uh, interested in film scoring and 
Right. <laughs> you know, Charlie Parker and Coltrane and stuff, you know, like, I kind of sincerely left that behind while still making these New Shoes records. And, and that's not, I don't say that as an excuse. I'm saying as, you know, that some people would chase success and we always just chased our interests. You know, we didn't dye our hair blue and try to make new wave music to get a record deal. That kind of thing. You know, it was all just really sincere. Yeah. Do you remember where you were the first time you heard the song on the radio? I do. I was in my little Toyota Corolla station wagon uh, driving up Widler Street in Portland, Oregon, hmm. and it was spring day. I had the windows rolled up, so it wasn't real warm. But the song comes on the radio, and I'm like, oh, my God, I'm hearing it for the first time on the radio. And then I realized, I started singing along to it, and I realized <laughs> I was singing along to myself. <laughs> and that was the craziest feeling. I just, I rolled down the window, and I just wanted to shout to the world. I mean, it was like one of those Mary Tyler Moore moments where, you know, right. the beginning of her show, she throws her hat in yeah. the air. <laughs> Blue sky, I'm riding in my car, I'm singing along to myself, with myself yeah. on the radio. Yeah. It was a great moment. Yeah. Now, did you guys, because uh, I was, what was, I was about 12 years old when the, came, the song came out, or the album, first one came out, so I don't remember if you guys toured or not to support that record. Yeah, we played 70 cities in 73 days. Oh, so I guess so. <laughs> yeah, and on the three days off, we did laundry. Oh, I bet. Oh, man. You know, so that was two and a half months on the road, and, um, uh, you know, it's funny because <laughs> here again, and it was 
it was a big learning curve, that's for sure. Did your relationship with the song change while you were performing it 70 days out of 73 nights? Oh, man. You know, well, everybody loved the song. But the song is just one moment in a long life of making music. You know what I mean? It wasn't like like the come to Jesus moment <laughs> in our lives. You know, it was just like, oh, you know, okay, we got this hit song. Everybody likes it. Great. You Wonderful. Know, it, After seven years of toiling in obscurity, to right. have people recognize something, you know, that we're doing and instead of like what do you do for a living oh i'm a musician what band are you in new shoes oh nice yeah you know that was the <laughs> they didn't know what the band was and then <clears throat> after i can't wait it was like oh are you guys the one that do that song you know that yeah. recorded that song and yeah so i mean it, it was just you know we wanted to be because we had played four hours a night that for seven years and done all kinds of music we wanted to to continue to do all kinds of music. I think that was just kind of our our thing. Yeah. And and so if if we had had a little bit more information um, about what it was that we were really doing and how we could get to that place maybe later, in you know, like get the first tour out of the way and then go do some new music and then I don't know. I I, I would love to go back and talk to myself in that time period. Yeah, me too. Right. <laughs> Now, after the second album came out, you guys took a little break from your shoes. I mean, it's more mobile. No, no, you guys spent four years making the third record. Okay. And Atlantic didn't release it. And at that point, we uh, by now it's '92, September '92, and um, at that point, having worked on that record, and that was another uh, kind of laborious process. How many songs did we did we demo? Like oh god, I don't even know. At least a hundred. Yeah. Was that the one that came became Kung Pao? Well, uh, some of the stuff from from there that nobody ever heard and wasn't you know uh, going to be on the record ended up on um, Kung Pao Kitchen. Yeah, the songs that that the label rejected. Yeah. Then later on. I don't know. We decided to release. Thirteen years later, it's like we still like these songs, and that did become Kung Pao Kitchen. Yeah.
that it was like reissues when I, when I first heard it. There was, oh wow, you guys are back and you know, you sound just like you did uh, 15, 20 years ago. That's because it was made 15, 20 years ago. Exactly, yeah, I didn't know that at first. Like, wow, you guys... Stuff, you know, and a lot of it was done with the same production team and the same gear that um, Eaton, or, or that uh, Told You So was, you know, there was a direct through line. And, you know, we didn't take a day off from from music right. from 1977 to uh, 92 like we had barely a day off for that whole stretch and so um, you know we were tired and our, we were, our, our uh, manager came to us and said do you want to do you want me to try to get you another deal you know mm-hmm. after the re- they didn't release the record and we were you know obviously not going to be moving forward with Atlantic and we were both like you know not fun anymore and when it's not fun then the purpose and meaning kind of gets drained out of it and it you can't prop it up you know with just I want to make music so I can make money or something like that that just doesn't work so um, John went on to do uh, commercial music and music for film and I started teaching voice yeah, and it's, it's interesting because where bands would break up, you guys are still together, just not professionally. You're still together personally. Well, now we're doing new shoes again. Right. You know, going out on the 80s circuit. And, and we have a band here in town, which, of course, is large. And so we can't really travel with them. So the 80s shows are great. So we play with our band around here around the Pacific Northwest. And we go out on these 80s tours with all these bands that we uh, listened to back in the day, like Lisa Lisa and Cult Jam and um, Expose. And, um, you know. It's a blast. It's a blast. And Cutting Crew and right. um, um, we, we did some yeah. shows with, with Boy George oh, okay. last year. And so it, it's like a big camping trip with with our 80s pals. 
saying, you know, these shows can be really fun. The audiences are great. You should just try a couple. And our, our son graduated from high school, and uh, you'll appreciate this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and we were like, really? Okay, we're free. Uh, let's go. Yeah. You know? So so about five years ago is when we started doing these shows, and she was right. The this agent was right. It, the shows are really fun. And, you know, it's like everyone's grown up. Um, the audiences have grown up. We've grown up. We appreciate life. The fact that we're still able to make music is um, also a miracle. So the shows just have a different kind of energy to them now that um, is really special. And it's, it, they're in stadiums, you know. It's like six to 10,000 people. And it's all about the hits. Everybody just goes out and does their hits, and it's a big 80s sing-along. But very sweet. You know, all the generations, there's grandmas uh, on down to little kids in the audience. And I guess we were kind of primed for, for doing it again, too, because between 92 and 2013, we got to do a lot of different kinds of music. I mean, John's made everything from, or written and arranged everything from, music for the Cowgirl Hall of Fame to um, classical stuff to my big band record. I got to do jazz and trios and uh, a big band. I hear music when I look at you A beautiful theme from every dream I ever knew Down deep in my heart I hear it play I feel it start then melt away I hear music when I touch your hand a beautiful melody from some enchanted land Down deep in my heart I hear it say Is this the day? I alone have heard this lovely strain I alone have heard this glad refrain Must it be forever inside of me? Why can't I let it go? Why can't I let you know? Why can't I let you know the song my heart would sing? That beautiful rhapsody of love and youth and spring. The music is sweet, the words are true. The song is you. Like immense gratitude that 
this music has lasted as long as it has, and that we get to share it with people again in a, in a, in a really fun way. Yeah, I, I've seen a bunch of those shows, and hopefully when you guys come to the East Coast in the summer, I'll be able to, to see you guys. But no, those shows are great. It's Whereas, like, you see if three to four hours of 12, 13 bands, unlike, you know, four hours of just playing one band, New Shoes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so then after playing for a few years, you guys decided to release Backtown, which is a little different than the 80s stuff, but it's very jazzy, very funky, little 70s. Uh, what was that process like going through uh, the crowdfunding? Good, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, well, there's actually the process of making the record it's, itself um, was really fun because, again, back in the day, you kind of made these things in isolation. And the fun thing about Bagtown is that we could we could share our process and we could share some moments of the making of the record with people um, as we did it. And so the crowdfunding was a part of that, and um, it was really fun because again, we're in a different relationship with our audience, our audience now than we were back in the '80s because there's more potential for um, for communication because of the internet, you know. So, so the process of making that record was really was really fun and very satisfying musically because our band is wonderful. We have one of the reasons we made the record is because we have a home studio and we have all these people that we're playing with who are great at what they do, and so we just thought we have to capture this moment. And um, we also were playing a lot of summer festivals with our band, and we needed really fun. Uh, dance music to do that. I mean, we have lots of different kinds of music that we play, but um, it, the, that was one of the prime directives of this record is like, you know, good good stuff for festival consumption, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> stuff that's fun to play outdoors. Yeah, that translates in that environment.
son designed the album cover, correct? Yes, and that was the other really fun thing about doing the record is that we got to work with him, and um, he's very talented, and so anyway, it was just a blast all the way around because it was a family affair. That's great. Now, um, I know you mentioned before that it's too large to travel with your band, um, but would you decide to kind of crowdfund that as well? Have people crowdfunded tours before? Do they? I don't, I don't know. I think, huh? I think that they have, but um, yeah, that's, that's a little more, I mean... It would cost so much money to take... Right, so many people. And yeah. people on the road, right? Know, and counting the sound man, you know, and um, the hotels and airplanes, right? Airfares <laughs> for ten people. Yeah, we'd be crowdfunding for a year to do like you know a three day tour or something. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <It would> <laughs> so be, it would be hard. It'd be hard to do. So we get the best of both worlds, you know. We get to go out and. For the people that just want to hear, I can't wait. Point of no return. And you know, I say yes? You know, yeah. we go out and do that, and it's great. Uh, they're great camping trips, and we have a lot of fun. And then we get to come back and have um, slightly more musical experience with our uh, nine-piece band. You know, and that, that's just a totally different thing. It's more of a musical laboratory too. So for John, who is still the the songwriter of this and the music director of the group he gets to stretch out in that way mm-hmm. right. did you guys uh, enjoy the iconic pop uh, version of I Can't Wait yeah they did a great job um, what's his name Questlove Questlove yeah. yeah yeah he did a fantastic job Yeah, no, it was, it was a great ad, and I'm sure my wife's at Target right now. That's her favorite store. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I never got to hear it on TV, but I walked into a Target, and this whole wall of TVs exploded into it. And so that was pretty cool. 
That was another great moment. Yeah. And thank goodness for stuff like that for, you know, our catalog now because when music gets used in commercials like that, it gives us uh, more opportunities to do other, you know, to make new music. So Bagtown was partially funded through Target. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. And probably uh, NBA games because you hear, I can't wait, like at every NBA game. Exactly. Yeah. We are. We're, yeah. Miami started it. Right, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, it's like every time they, they bring the ball up court, you, you hear the baseline. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, definitely. But, uh, guys, thank you so much for a few minutes today. I really appreciate it, and uh, I hope to see you guys this summer.
And a special thanks to John and Valerie for joining me today. Follow New Shoes on Twitter at New Shoes Music. The website's also newshoesmusic.com. Be sure to like the page Living My Youth on Facebook. You can follow me on Twitter at the first Noel 19 Go to iTunes. You can check out past episodes. And while you're there, please rate and review the show. Special thanks to everyone who's listening. I can't do without you guys. And be on the lookout for another episode of Living My Youth real soon.